Blog Talk Radio. Well, good evening. It's John St. Germain again welcoming you beyond the veil into the Crystal Silence League hour. And tonight we're looking again at the near-death experience and we're going to examine a um, rather convincing uh, scientific materialist model, the dying brain theory. And then we're going to see if, is this really an explanation of the near-death experience? Is it or isn't it? Come back in just a minute with a drink of your choice and your crystal ball in hand and your mind opened your third eye opened your chakras opened and your doors and windows opened because man is it hot outside and we'll explore this question see you in just a minute I was reading an article online. I'll post a link to it on the uh, Blackhawk Power Shrine Facebook page, which you can find by looking at any of my other Facebook pages, John St. Germain Facebook, uh, Divine Harmony, Spiritual Church Facebook, and any of them. Um, And according to this article, listening to the Native American flute or playing the Native American flute has healing properties. This is not a... um, uh, you know, an article in uh, one of these uh, fly-by-night uh, New Age magazines, but an actual scientific study that it lowers blood pressure, uh, changes the way the brain operates, creates uh, feelings of peace and tranquility, can help with depression, both situational and clinical, if you can dig it. Um can um, help um, promote healing of uh, many conditions uh, and is just all around uh, uh, a phenomenal uh, healing uh, technique. The vibrational range of the harmonics of the Native American flute seems to be quite remarkable and um, in terms of promoting healing which I think is very cool. Not when I play it. When I play it, the neighbor neighbor's cat eats her eats her own kittens. So 
You know, you, you, you don't want me to stand by your deathbed playing my flute for you. You want someone who actually knows how to play it. But isn't that, isn't that cool? Isn't that a cool thing? Uh, actual studies. You can find that study online. Look for uh, – I'll, I'll post a link to it on my Facebook page. You can go look at it. Those of you who have Facebook – you know, not, not everybody has Facebook. It's just assumed. Um, people think, we're going to change the world by posting on Facebook. We're going to change the world. But the majority of people – are not on Facebook, not the minority, the majority of people. And um, uh, so people think, a lot of people think they post on Facebook and their their impact on the world is nuclear. It's more like firecrackers. It really is. Look at, uh, do, do a Google on that um, percentage of people who are actually on Facebook. And, about, and of the people on Facebook, a lot of them just connect with family and friends, not not you or me. And they connect with their special interest groups that tell them what they want to hear, like, um, you know, the uh, Chihuahua Society or the uh, Apple Pie Society or Fishing, Bass Fishing Association. They don't even see the things, you know, you and I post. So they're not, they're not getting that message. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting thing. And because uh, I know uh, people that are very involved in, political activism and you know they think you got you got to share this you got to share this and you know you know who are we going to share it with it's people who already believe what we believe it's it's very inbred ingrown and uh so that's just uh, you know i just wonder if instagram and facebook and uh things like that are a force for social change i don't know when i was a kid in the 60s and 70s, we went out and marched and protested and did sit-ins and stuff. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Did we change anything? I don't know. You know the, the world is still the world. I, I really don't know. Um, some people, maybe it was Abby Hoffman, you know, said the protests of the 60s were more social event than political events. I don't know. I don't know. Let's look at our stone of the week which is blue anhydrite. Isn't that an interesting name, blue anhydrite? By the name anhydrite, you know it's without water. That's what anhydrite means, without water. And I'm going to tell you that it's gypsum, gypsum, which is which is sheetrock. Sheetrock is gypsum, without water. If you take gypsum and you put it under a lot of pressure and heat it to 200 degrees Celsius, you get blue anhydrite which is also known as angelite. That pretty blue angelite stone is gypsum, which is um, actually blue anhydrite if you remove the water and put it under pressure and heat it, which means that if you take angelite and add, or angelite, as some people like to call it, um, um, and add water to it, you will get gypsum, but the process is reversible. Very lovely stone. Sometimes you'll have red hematite occlusions in it, give it veins. And um, this is a, uh, a bluish, sometimes purplish, sometimes whitish stone. Sometimes you'll see it in the form of angel wings. It's called angel wing angelite or angel wing anhydrite. And... Um, it's one of the angel stones that's used to contact the angelic realms, the beings who live in, in the higher vibrational realms. Um, it was originally found in Peru, and for a long time it was only uh, believed to be uh, found in Peru, and then it was found everywhere, uh, Germany and Central Europe, Libya, Egypt, Mexico. I think it was found in England. And um, sometimes it's mistaken for blue calcite, but... Uh, they, they are very similar, but you can if you hold them in your hands, you can tell the difference uh, in weight and in texture. Um, it's used uh, quite a bit to help uh, create a, a feeling of bliss. Uh, if you're if you're tense, anxious, it can be helped induce bliss because it does work on the top three chakras. It can help intensify clairvoyant psychic communication, telepathy. Uh, communication with the higher angelic realms, help you put in touch with your spirit guides and your ancestors. Uh, you know, uh, the spiritual church, spiritualism, 
have always worked with ancestral spirits. We always just called them spirits. And uh, with the uh, popularity of the, uh, uh, the African traditional religion, religious form, religion and its forms of divination in the past, gosh, like five or six years, really, um, it became popular to call uh, ancestral spirits ancestors. Everybody's talking about ancestors. I'm going to work with my ancestors. Well, spiritual, spiritual church always did that. People would come to us for messages uh, from their mom, their dad, their grandfather, um, uh, sometimes with sons, uh, you know, sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters. Um, and we always helped people uh, uh, contact ancestor spirits. And um, uh, you, you hear ancestors, 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 ancestors. And it was all, we used to just call them spirits in the uh, spiritual church and the spiritualist church. So um, this is not new. It's not a new thing. And uh, it's, right now it's a popular thing, though. And, uh, but before you contact somebody to um, get in touch with your ancestors, um, make sure that they have creds because there are a lot of trickster spirits that will that will move in on you and say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm your Uncle Ralph. Sure, you know, yeah, let me have some of those treats you have on the altar. And once you get a trickster spirit moved in with you, they're really hard to get out. So anyway, Angelite and Hydrus, um, um, and Hydrite, Blue and Hydrite, is a very, very cool stone to have um, in your arsenal. Um if you make your elixir, put it in a glass and put it in the water. Uh, they, they probably won't dissolve into gypsum, but, you know, you never know. Um, it can help you stimulate your telepathy, help you with psychic visions, help you um, bring messages in from spirit. Um, you can make an elixir from it and anoint yourself, anoint your third eye. Uh, uh, if it's a darker blue, it can help you with your throat chakra, help you... Uh, if you're having blockages in communication. Um, so it's pretty cool cool stone, our uh, blue anhydrite or angelite. We are the Crystal Silence League. Uh, we are a resource for members and followers and uh, uh, other people interested in the Crystal Silence League. We do recommend you read our literature. That's available at www.crystalsilenceleague.org. Uh, we do not recommend crystals as a substitute for medical uh, uh, medical uh, treatment of medical conditions. We don't recommend, if you're suffering from serious depression and anxiety, that you wear a necklace of uh, calcite to try to cure that. We do believe that meditation and work with crystals can help you properly use with uh, mental concentration, projection, attraction, affirmation, and healing with many of your problems. Because in New Thought, we believe that mental states manifest externally. That's one of the, the primary uh, tenets of New Thought, that internal states manifest externally. But we do urge you to learn these techniques we do have literature available. We have a couple of books by our founder, Claude Alexander Conlon. We have a couple of books by me, Reverend John St. Germain. Uh, many, many books by the early pioneers of New Thought. There's books by Florence Scoville Shin that you can find, uh, by Dr. Phineas Quimby, one of our founders. Uh, many, many books. Uh, uh, Napoleon Hill was a was a New Thought author, Think and Grow Rich. He's written many books, The, the Laws of Spiritual Wealth, I believe. The, the Spiritual Laws of Wealth, he wrote. A very large and good book um, on New Thought. Uh, we do urge you to become familiar with the use of crystals. Um, not, We don't believe crystals have magical powers, uh, Although crystals can be used in the practice of spell work, um, uh, holding a crystal in your hand is not going to cure you of serious medical conditions. We just want to urge, urge you to understand that. Now, if you go to the Crystal Silence League uh, webpage, www.crystalsilenceleague.org, we also urge you to join our Facebook page. You'll notice that there is a prayer page 
where you post where you can post prayers and prayers are always free at the Crystal Silence League. And we have hundreds of prayers a week posted, and we will pray for you. Um, all of our pastors and all of our members sometimes pray for you. And if you get prayed for, there's um, a little button people click, and you get an email that you've been prayed for. If you need a prayer removed, just let us know. There's a button that says remove this prayer, and we'll remove it for you. Or you can remove it yourself, usually. And it's been my custom since we started this show to read aloud some of these prayers. And we read them anonymously, so don't fret. You know, if you get on here and pray for the death of some ex or something, we're not going to out you. Don't worry about it. Um, but, and people do that, actually. We may get one tonight. Who knows? Um, so do join me in prayer. We have prayer ID number 74858, who says, Oh, please, may I find a good job in the small town I live in. Please let me find a job through people I encounter, because not many jobs are advertised. Please enable me to bring income into the house once again to help myself and my husband. Amen. Prayer ID 74857. Who says, I'm sorry to be asking again. Help please with my issues. My son starts working. Please stop playing video games and finding the right girl in his life so they can be happy and prosperous together. Help with my business to sell very quickly. Meanwhile, do well so it will look attractive to the buyer. I'm suffering inside with these issues. Cannot take pressure. I'm 68 years old. Please help with your prayers. Amen. Okay, if if this person's 68, how old is her son sitting home playing video games? Sell his video game machine and tell him to get off his ass and get a job. Hallelujah. Prayer ID 74856. Lord, you know who is behind this attack. Please remove them and restore BHH business. Amen. Prayer ID 74855. Lord, please show your might and strengthen my life. Shut down my accusers, backstabbers, and liars. Put me up higher and give me the victory over their vicious, emotional, slanderous attacks. Remove people who are trying to bring problems to my life and put me down. Push me over the top right in front of their eyes. Amen. And prayer ID 74854. Lord, please protect me from self-destruction and self-harm. This person, she additionally prays, remove the urge to use alcohol, drugs, and any mood-altering substances. Amen. And prayer ID 74853. I pray that my wife and I would get back together. I pray for a good and successful marriage. Amen. And prayer ID 74852. <clears throat> Lord Ganesha, Mother Goddess, and Father God, please conspire to help ease parents listen, understand, and seek further fact-based education in matters of white privilege, politics, and the presence of white supremacists on multiple GOP ballots. Please open their way to choosing PBS and NPR over Fox News. Please help them see clearly the effects of their political choices, both domestically and abroad. For the good of all concerned, according to the free will of all concerned, so mote it be. Thank you. Times nine. Amen. Prayer ID 74851. Touch the teacher that she has leniency in grading papers. Pray for favor to pass exam. Amen. And prayer ID 74850. Pray that my love comes back to me. Amen. Prayer ID 74849. Our great holy Allah, we ask that you release the spirit of comprehension and make us good, sharp listeners of all statements made from the judge so that we will communicate back with clear overstanding, articulation, and truth. Help us to speak with eloquence to expose all lies and deceit that they may spew upon our case, and that our words will vibrate into the heart and ears of the judge that he too will recognize truth from our lips and rule in according to the state, state you at large. Amen. Prayer ID 74848. Hi all. Kindly pray that my ex-boyfriend finally stopped believing manipulative people's views of me and reach out to reconcile our relationship with me. Amen. Prayer ID 74847. 
Thank you for your prayers. I finally heard from the first recruiter that she is pushing for the woman who interviewed me to submit her review of my phone interview today. Tomorrow, I'll know if the company wants to proceed to the on-site interview. Please pray that my interviewer gives me strong, positive feedback and recommends that I proceed to the on-site interview. I need my interviews, recommendations to move to the next step. Praying, bless me, bless kids. Thank you. Amen. Well, hooray. Prayer ID 74846. I pray to heal my kids' hearts so that they're more receptive to decisions I have made recently. Open their minds to see and accept why I've made the decisions I've made. I want peace through this change. It was what I thought was for the best. I just want them to be on board and more supportive of my choice. Pray for peace and harmony in my house. Amen. Let's just have a couple more here. Prayer ID 74845. All saints, please pray that I'm able to get a house before my lease is up this year on my apartment, which is almost $1,200. The interest rate keeps going up, and my rent for an apartment is so high. I was pre-approved, but I have no extra money for a down payment. I'm praying for a way. Amen. That's right. In the in the uh, um, federal bank says it's going to be five more increases in six months. Prayer ID 74844, please, please, please pray for my healing. Something is terribly wrong with my body. Please pray for my healing. This is making me worry until I'm sick at my stomach. Please pray that God gives me four more good years on this earth. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you all. Amen. Well, let's have a moment of silent prayer and meditation for all those in need and comfort and healing. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to look at a uh, a fairly convincing uh, scientific materialist view of the near-death experience that uh, posits there's no soul and there's nothing that leaves the body. It's entirely a physiological um, phenomenon, and this is the dying brain theory of uh, Dr. Susan Blackmore. Uh, if you've ever seen a... Uh, a documentary on near-death experiences. You probably have seen an interview with uh, Susan Blackmore, um, as well as um, uh, Michael Penrose, who developed the God Helmet, which was completely discredited. Uh, so let's look at uh, Dr. Dr. Blackmore, who has made it very clear up front that she is a materialist. She doesn't believe in a soul or uh, or a self of any sort. Uh, She's also, interestingly enough, a Buddhist. Uh, she's a Zen Buddhist, and one of the very materialist Zen Buddhists uh, of the school of Stephen Batchelor, who wrote a book called Buddhism Without Beliefs, if you've ever seen that. 
where he stripped Buddhism of uh, concepts such as karma and rebirth, the idea that there's a uh, a uh, stream of uh, consciousness that is uh, reborn throughout successive lives. Uh, reincarnation is not a concept in Buddhism. That's Hinduism. It's rebirth. It's called Poonbhava, which we've discussed at length in, I think, the first or second season of the show. And Poonbhava does not require a soul, by the way, to be reborn, but we'll go with that at some other point. But there is a, uh, a quality of awareness that is um, reborn, and there's a difference between rebirth and reincarnation because it doesn't posit a self, but that's a topic for another day. Uh, Stephen Batchelor threw all that out and uh, wrote a book called Buddhism Without Beliefs, which he sort of recanted in an interview with uh, Robert Thurman, Uma Thurman's father, who was the first Westerner to be ordained as a Mahayana monk, as a Tibetan monk. Um, so uh, that's a nice little aside. But anyway, Susan Blackmore, Zen Buddhist, um, psychologist and uh, former hardcore skeptic. In later years, she said she's tired of the fight. Um, she's not so much a, a skeptical debunker of the psychic as she used to be, but um, she outlined this dying brain theory that had uh, in a book called Dying to Live, which contained uh, essentially the following uh, bits and pieces. Uh, nothing really new, but pieces of uh, scientific uh, uh, research that uh, had the following elements. There the feelings of peace and bliss of the near-death experience were caused by endorphins released by the dying brain. The tunnel and light were caused by anoxia, lack of oxygen in the brain that caused the brain, to fire, brain cells to fire randomly. The life review of the near-death experience were caused by temporal lobe seizures that were triggered by endorphins. Um, experience being out of body is due to a breakdown of the body image and the model of reality. We're going to go into all these in just a minute. The accurate perceptions of immediate environment during the near-death experience was due to prior knowledge, fantasy, and lucky guesses and the remaining operating senses of hearing and touch. So there's really nothing new here. Um, on this uh, attack, which is really what it was. It was an attack on the transcendental interpretation of the near-death experience. It's a combination of various uh, physiological and psychological theories that's strung together uh, in an attempt to provide a materialist explanation for several, not all, but several, of the aspects of the uh, near-death experience. And uh, most of these we've examined in detail why those explanations, like the uh, temporal lobe seizure, doesn't, no, it doesn't explain anything. Um, and they're refuted by the evidence. Most of these have been refuted by the evidence. But not dealt. But what we've not really dealt with yet is um, uh, Dr. Blackmore's, uh, really only her original contribution to this uh, controversial topic, the attempt to provide a psychological explanation for the out-of-body component for the near-death experience. Um, so, the uh, uh, Dr. Blackmore, more who proposed that the out-of-body experience is the brain's only way of dealing with the breakdown in the body image and model of reality when near death. The various reasons for this breakdown may be a lack of input, confusion through pain or injury, and actual physical distortion. It may be that the brain is no longer capable of building a good body image even if it had the information because it's ceasing to function properly. So when the normal mode of reality can no longer be sustained, what happens, according to Blackmore? So what can the dying brain do? So she says, I suggest that one possibility is to try to get back to normal by using whatever information is available to build a body image in a world. If the sensory input is cut off or confused, this information will have to come from memory and imagination. Memory can supply all the information about your body, what it looks like, how it feels, and so on. It can also supply a good picture of the world. Where was I? Oh, yes, I was lying in the road after that car hit me. However, there's one crucial thing we know about memory images. They're often built in a bird's eye view. 
Dr. Siegel, who wrote a book that we'll look at in a minute, uses a good example. Recall the last time you were walking along the seashore. Do you see the beach as though you, where your eyes would be, or are you looking from above? Many people recall such scenes in a kind of bird's eye view. It seems likely, therefore, according to Susan Blackmore, that in the event of nearly dying, or any other circumstances in which the normal model of reality has broken down, such a bird's eye memory model may take over as real. So, uh, this is her explanation for the out-of-body experience. So, in order for this to work, in order for this to stand up, you have to have, have to account for the aerial perspective commonly reported during the near-death experience. So, Dr. Blackmore does this by claiming that memories are often, often built in a bird's eye view and provides as evidence of this uh, Dr. Siegel's example in support. Now, this comes from Dr. Siegel's 1977 article titled Hallucinations, which focuses on his work giving an undetermined, an unspecified, an unnamed uh, number of subjects, various drugs of unspecified doses, and, uh, and recording the subsequent hallucinations. Um, and at one point, Siegel at one point mentions memories from an aerial perspective. Um, he, uh, he almost word for word quotes this. He says, uh, recall the last time you went swimming in the ocean. Now ask yourself if this memory includes a picture of yourself running along the beach or moving about in the water. Such a picture is obviously fictitious since you could not have been looking at yourself. But images in the memory often uh, include fleeting pictures of this kind. Our subjects often reported equally improbable images, such as aerial perspectives and underwater views. During the peak hallucinatory period, the subjects frequently reported feeling disassociated from their bodies. Uh, she also cited an article by George Nigro and Ulrich Neisser to support her contention of the bird's eye view. So the aerial perspective for the dying brain hypothesis rests on the works of Nigro and Nicer and of Dr. Siegel. Now, uh, Nigro and Nicer reported finding two types of memory, which they called observer memory and field memory. In observer memory, one seems to have the position of an onlooker or observer looking at the situation from an external point of view. In field memory, the scene appears from one's own position. Uh, the roughly the field of view that was available in the original situation, and you do not see yourself. The researchers, um, of course, went through the usual process. They, they recruited uh, a sample of undergraduates and high school students to participate. They also cautioned against making too much of their study, writing, our investigation is only a preliminary one. So far, we've studied only a few situations, a few recall instructions, an unrepresentative sample of subjects, and an uncontrolled range of recencies. Nevertheless, Nigro and Nicer found that field memories tended to be more clear and vivid and were more likely to include the recall of emotions and feelings associated with the event. Observer memories, in contrast, the bird's eye view memories, were not as vivid, but did occur almost half the time when subjects were asked to recall the concrete objective circumstances of an occasion. Overall, Everyone found, all the investigators found, that as in earlier studies, there were more field than observer memories. And so the conclusion was a deliberate attempt to remember the objective circumstances of an event leads to relatively more observer memories, bird's eye memories. A focus on feelings lead to more field memories. People who are given no special recall set generally focus on their own feelings in remembering an event. So Nigro and Neisler wondered what could account for the fact that some memories are from an observer perspective, and they considered Freud's theory that observer memories are a product of imaginative reconstructed construction. However, they write, another hypothesis also merits consideration. Freud's assumption that original impressions are necessarily field may not be justified. It's also possible that observer experiences both of us, the authors, can attest to the possibility of experiencing events from a detached perspective as they occur. In such instances, we're conscious of how the entire scene would appear to an onlooker who sees us as well as our surroundings. It's not clear how these experiences are best interpreted, but it's clear that they do exist. 
In short, Nigro and Nicer wrote that observer memories may be the results of events that were experienced from an observer perspective. These observer experiences described by Nigro and Nicer seem to strongly resemble the separation of the mind from the body, in other words, an OBE. So Blackmore's dying brain hypothesis needs the bird's eye view to explain OBEs, and the evidence for memories in a bird's eye view described depends on Nigro and Nicer's article, which they described as a preliminary study based on an unrepresentative sample and which observer experience may account for many observer memories. So the bottom line of that seems to be that it'd be really hard to imagine a more tenuous connection between uh, Dr. Blackmore's bird-eye view explanation of the out-of-body experience and uh, Dr. Nigro and Nicer's article. Now, so we can more or less throw that away. Um, however, we we uh, do have uh, Dr. Siegler's 1977 article on hallucinations in which one paragraph mentions the bird's eye view perspective. So Dr. Siegel uh, gives his opinion on the aerial perspective, but did not cite any data or studies on memory reconstruction, such as the study Nigro and Nisler conducted. Siegel's article was not even on memory, but on drug hallucination. And so this foundation for the bird's eye view uh, explanation of the out-of-body experience is even more flimsy than the citation for Nigro and Nisler's article. So the case that the out-of-body experience is due to a breakdown of body image with a subsequent reconstruction of what happened when the person was unconscious is very specious, but is somewhat stronger when, when, uh, when she attempts to explain accurate perceptions by the remaining senses of touch and hearing because uh, she notes that during unconsciousness, the senses are not all lost at once, which is true. So sometimes the senses of hearing and touch are still available to the seemingly unconscious person. So the possibility exists that people hear conversations, they feel medical procedures being performed, and they can incorporate this data to reconstruct uh, a plausible account of what happened during the time that they were apparently unconscious. Okay, now now we're on, we're on firmer ground now. So in this regard, Blackmore quoted from the case described earlier by Dr. Sebaum, who is, you know, one of our leading um, proponents of uh, near-death experience research and who uh, has made convincing case that there is some astral body or soul that leaves the body during these events. Uh, Dr. Sebaum describes uh, a case where a man claimed to have witnessed a shot being administered near his groin while out of the body, and he was above himself looking down. Now, we discussed this case, and as mentioned in that, the patient did not receive an injection, but in fact had blood withdrawn from his femoral artery. Now, uh, Dr. Sebaum felt that the patient's mistake was understandable only on the hypothesis that the perception of the scene was visual, not auditory. If the patient's description was based on remarks overheard, then he would not have confused the withdrawal of blood with an injection. So... Dr. Blackmore suggested that the man never left his body but felt the pain of the needle while semi-conscious and later built this up into a visual picture of what was happening during his resuscitation. Now, the critique of that was offered by health psychologist William uh, Sertahaley, who wrote an excellent critique of the dying brain hypothesis, point by point, and he pointed out that this raises an interesting question. He asked, if reconstruction of stimuli from other senses is indeed the case, then why do we not find out-of-body perceptions from a supine or prone or even a sitting position, at least occasionally? Using Blackmore's explanations and giving the preliminary nature of Nigro and Nisler's study, which in any event found that field memories, that is, memories from the original perspective, occur more frequently than observer memories, one would expect near-deathers, near-death experiencers, to say that during an out-of-body experience, they looked up to see living relatives 
and our medical providers. So given this extremely flimsy support provided by the work of Nigro and Niesler and of Siegel for her theory on which it's based, and giving this prediction that a mental reconstruction of memories in which field memories predominate should yield at least some, if not many, sightings from a prone perspective, uh, Serta Haley seems correct in concluding that Blackmore's theory of the out-of-body experience just doesn't seem to hold up. Now, there's a, a thing she, she proposes called neural disinhibition and out-of-body experience. Uh, she cites a study of the effects of anoxia on rat brain cells in support of the idea that anoxia abolishes inhibitory potentials before excitatory ones. So she postulates that with anoxia affecting large areas of the brain, we should expect global disinhibition and therefore random excitation of whole brain areas. What this says is that um, um, it's possible that the disinhibition she describes in the visual cortex and especially in the temporal lobes with its concomitant neural excitation may be the physical, physiological condition that opens the gate, so to speak, to release the soul from the physical body. Um, after all, there, if there's a soul, then it has to interface with the physical body somehow. This is um, Dr. Serta Haley, who's not committed to a materialist physician. Um, so she believes that, um, Dr. Blackmore believes that the um, cortical disinhibition acts like a uh, psychedelic drug creating hallucinations, Dr. Serta Haley thinks that neurodisinhibition releases the soul. So, um, the perception of dead relatives um, um, uh, turns out that um, um, Uh, let's see, we're talking about Dr. Serdla Haley here. Um, um, Dr. Serdla Haley says, Blackmore attributed the tunnel light and noises disinhibition. With that as my premise, my question is how the dying brain hypothesis accounts for seeing deceased relatives during a near-death experience. If relatives are encountered in the course of a near-death experience, almost always they're said to be deceased. So how does the disinhibited brain know to call up these memories only and not memories or images of living loved ones? It would seem that if the brain alone is responsible for a near-death experience, then it's more likely that the brain would recall images of living loved ones to provide the comfort and assurance that near-death experiences report from encountered deceased beings. If there's a random firing of disinhibited neurons, then why do these neurons almost always produce images of deceived loved ones. And finally, a major difficulty with all dying brain theories of the near-death experience is that they assume that clear memories can be formed at a time when cerebral function is severely compromised. And this has been touched on by many um, physiologists in discussion of an anorexia, hypercarbia, and the chemical explanations, but it seems um, that if you really want to look into it, you can you can go into what you know about the physiology of a dying brain. And several of the most scientifically rigorous studies of the near-death experience have involved interviewing all survivors of cardiac arrest during a set time period shortly after their resuscitation in a hospital. And these prospective studies have several obvious advantages. The resulting sample is not self-selected. There's a nearly identical control group um, detailed medical records are readily available, and both subjects and witnesses are interviewed shortly after the event. Um, and the mental state of cardiac arrest survivors is the closest model to that of a dying brain. Uh, this is due to the fact that cardi cardiac arrest patients, by definition, exhibit two out of three criteria required to pronounce an individual dead. No cardiac output no spontaneous respiratory effort, and usually in the clinical setting of an arrest, they develop all three fixed dilated pupils due to the loss of brainstem activity. So, um, you know, if you like at some point, uh, I have uh, 
very technical uh, scientific journals about near-death experience um, that um, go into great detail about people with even flat EEGs and um, um, that um, uh, people with near-death experience. Um, but I don't see any, if you want to find this stuff, you certainly can. Um, so two physicians, uh, Dr. Par Drs. Parnia and Fenwick, point out the problems um, that all the scientific data propose for any dying brain hypothesis. The occurrence of lucid, well-structured thought processes together with reasoning, attention, and memory recall of specific events during a cardiac arrest a near-death experience raised a number of interesting and perplexing questions regarding how such experiences could arise. These experiences appear to be occurring at a time when cerebral function can be described at best as severely impaired and at worst absent. In addition, cerebral localization studies have indicated that thought processes are mediated through a number of different cortical areas rather than a single area of the brain. Therefore, a globally disordered brain would not be expected to produce lucid thought processes. From a clinical point of view, any acute alteration in cerebral physiology, such as occurring in hypoxia, hypercarbia, metabolic and drug-induced disturbances and seizures, leads to disorganized and compromised cerebral function. Furthermore, any reduction in cerebral blood flow leads to impaired attention and higher cerebral function. NDEs and cardiac arrest are clearly not confusional and, in fact, indicate heightened awareness, attention, and consciousness at a time when consciousness and memory would not be expected to occur. Let's go to station identification, and I'm going to read something to you that will blow your mind. LMC Radio Network is a media alliance whose excellent shows include the Lucky Mojo Hoodoo Rootwork Hour with Catherine Ironwood and Condraman Ollie, Sundays 3 to 4.30, the Crystal Silence League Hour with John St. Germain, Tuesdays 5 to 6, and the Witch, the Priestess, and the Cauldron with Elvira Love and Phoenix Le Fay, Fridays 6 to 7. All times Pacific, add three hours for Eastern, sponsored by the Lucky Mojo Curio Company in Forestville, California, and online at luckymojo.com. We're going to look at some cases that provide evidence of... Uh, out-of-body experiences uh, because the patients know things they shouldn't be possibly be able to know. It's not that they overheard anything. They saw things they couldn't possibly know. Um, the following case was reported to researchers in 1990. 56-year-old um, um, uh, van driver Al Sullivan was taken to Hartford Hospital in Connecticut to have an irregular heartbeat diagnosed. Uh, during the testing, one of his coronary arteries became blocked and he was rushed to the operating room for bypass surgery. During the operation, he had a clear sensation of leaving his body in an upward direction. He also reported that to his amazement. He saw himself lying on a table covered with light blue sheets with his chest cut open. But this was not all he apparently saw. In his own words, I was able to see my surgeon, who just moments ago had explained to me what he was going to do during my operation. He appeared to be somewhat perplexed. I thought he was flapping his arms as if trying to fly. It was at this point I noticed one of the three figures I saw on my arrival was that of my brother-in-law, who had died almost two years before. It was then that I turned my attention to the lower right-hand side of the place I was at. I saw the most brilliant yellow light coming from what appeared to be a well-lit tunnel. The light that came from the tunnel was of a golden yellow hue, and although the brightest I had ever looked into, it was no discomfort to my eyes at all. Then, preceded by warmth, joy and peace, and a feeling of being loved, a brown-cloaked figure drifted out of the light toward me. And my euphoria rose still more. I, much to my delight, recognized it to be that of my mother. My mother had died at age 37 when I was seven years old. I'm now in my 50s, and the first thought that came to my mind was how, how young my mother appeared. She smiled at me and appeared to be shaping words with her mouth, and these were not audible to me. Through thought transfer, we were soon able to communicate. All at once, my mother's expression changed to that of concern. 
At this point, she left my side and drifted down toward my surgeon. She placed the surgeon's hand on the left side of my heart and then returned to me. I recall the surgeon making a sweeping motion as if trying to rid the area of a flying insect. My mother then extended one of her hands to me, but try as I might, I couldn't grasp it. She then smiled and drifted back toward the lit tunnel. Shortly after he regained consciousness, Sullivan told his cardiologist, Anthony LaSala, what he had observed during the operation. The cardiologist's first reaction was to attribute Sullivan's experience to the anesthetics he had been given. When Sullivan then described seeing the cardiologist surgeon, the cardiac surgeon, Hiroshi Takata, flapping his elbows as if to fly, LaSala's eyes widened, and he asked who had told Sullivan about that. Sullivan told the physician that he had seen it himself from above his body in the operating room. LaSala then explained that this was a peculiar habit of Takata's. If the surgeon had not yet scrubbed in and did not want his hands touching anything, he would flatten his palms against his chest and give instructions to his assistants by pointing with his elbows. LaSala confirmed to Grayson that Sullivan had told him about the experience shortly after he regained consciousness. He also confirmed that Takata has this peculiar habit of flapping his elbows, and he added that he had never seen any other surgeon do this. Oh, gosh, do we have time for this? Um, oh, we sure do. Now, and I've been teasing you about this for weeks, we're going to discuss the most extreme case of near-death experience ever recorded. The following case concerns the deepest near-death experience ever reported. Um, Anthony LaSala, um, um, ah, the experience occurred during neurosurgery at the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona uh, in 1991. 35-year-old Pam Reynolds was being operated on for a giant aneurysm in the wall of her basilar artery located at the base of the brain. A weakness in the wall of the large artery had caused it to balloon out the side of a faulty inner tube. Unless removed, the aneurysm would be fatal. So she'd been referred to surgeon Robert Spetzel of the Barrow Institute. As Spetzler had pioneered a daring surgical procedure known as hypothermic cardiac arrest that would allow Pam's aneurysm to be removed with a reasonable chance of success. The operation, nicknamed Standstill by the surgeons who performed it, would require her body temperature to be lowered to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, her heartbeat and breathing stopped, the electrical activity in her brain extinguished, and the blood drained from her head. In ordinary clinical terms, Pam would be dead. Uh, there was an episode of House, by the way, based on this. The extraordinary episode in the history of near-death experience research, uh, by the way, is described in great detail by Michael Sebohm in Chapter 3 of his book, Light and Death. The medical documentation of this event surrounding this case uh, far exceeds any recorded before and provides us with the most complete scientific glimpse yet into the near-death experience. And so Sabam says, Pam was wheeled into the operating room at 7.15 a.m., given general anesthesia to induce unconsciousness, and then prepped for surgery. Instruments were set up to monitor her blood pressure, body temperature, and heartbeat. In addition, EEG electrodes were taped to her head to record brain activity in the cerebral cortex. The auditory nerve center located in the brainstem was tested repeatedly using 100 decibel clicks emitted from small speakers inserted into her ears. As long as Pam, Pam's brainstem was still functioning, these clicks would evoke sharp spikes on the electrogram. By 8.40 a.m., Pam was ready for surgery, and over 20 physicians, nurses, and technicians had scrubbed in. Spessler began the surgery by opening the scalp with a blade and folded the scalp back to expose the skull. A nurse handed Spetzler the Midas Rex pneumatic-powered bone saw and a loud buzzing noise filled the room. Spetzler then began to carve out a section of Pam's skull. According to Pam, her experience began at about this time. The next thing I recall, she says, was the sound. It was a natural D. As I listened to the sound, I felt it was pulling me out of the top of my head. The further out of my body I got, the more clear the tone became. I had the impression it was like a road, a frequency that you go on. I remember seeing several things in the operating room when I was looking down. It was the most aware that I think I'd have ever been in my entire life. I was metaphorically sitting on Dr. Spettler's shoulder. It wasn't like normal vision. It was brighter and more focused and clearer than normal vision. There was so much in the operating room that I didn't recognize and so many people. I thought the way they had my head shaved was very peculiar. 
I expected them to take off take all the hair, but they did not. The saw thing that I hated the sound of looked like an electric toothbrush, and it had a dent in it. A groove at the top where the saw appeared to go into the handle, but it didn't. And the saw had interchangeable blades, too, but these blades were in what looked like a socket wrench case. I heard the saw crank up. I didn't see them use it on my head, but I think I heard it being used on something. It was humming at a relatively high pitch, and then all of a sudden it went like that. Spetzler removed the section of bone from Pam's skull, exposing the outermost membrane of her brain. This was cut open with scissors, and the operating microscope was swung into position. While this was going on, a female cardiac surgeon located the femoral artery and vein in Pam's right groin. These vessels turned out to be too small to handle the large flow of blood required by the cardiopulmonary bypass machine, and so the left femoral artery and vein were prepared instead. Pam later claimed to remember this point in the surgery. I distinctly remember a female voice saying, we have a problem, her arteries are too small, and then a male voice tried the other side. It seemed to come from further down the table. I do remember wondering, what are they doing there, because this is brain surgery. After cutting through the tough fibrous membrane, Spessler probed deep into Pam's brain until he located the aneurysm. As feared, it turned out to be, as Spessler noted in the medical records, extremely large and extended up into the brain. The risky procedure of hypothermic cardiac arrest would unfortunately be needed. At 10.50 a.m., the cardiac surgeon and heart pump technicians inserted tubes into the femoral artery and vein and connected these tubes to plastic hoses leading to and from the cardiopulmonary bypass machine. Warm blood traveled from the artery into the large reservoir cylinders of the bypass machine where it was cooled before being returned to Pam's body. Pam's body temperature began to fall. At 11 a.m., Pam's core body temperature had dropped 25 degrees, and the cardiac monitor's warning tone indicated cardiac malfunction. Pam's heart began beating in the irregular, disoriented pattern known as ventricular fibrillation. Sabom describes what the surgical team did next. Five minutes later, the remaining electrical spasms of Pam's dying heart were extinguished with massive intravenous doses of potassium chloride. Cardiac arrest was complete. As Pam's heart arrested, her brain waves flattened into complete electrocerebral silence. Brain stem function weakened as the clicks in the ear speakers produced lower and lower spikes on the monitoring electrogram. Twenty minutes later, her core body temperature had fallen another 13 degrees to a tomb-like 60 degrees Fahrenheit. The clicks from her ear speakers no longer elicited a response. Total brain shutdown. Then at precisely 11.25 a.m., Pam was subjected to one of the most daring and remarkable surgical maneuvers ever performed in an operating room. The head of the operating table was tilted up, the cardiopulmonary bypass machine was turned off, and the blood was drained from Pam's body like oil from a car. Pam recalled that sometime during this period she had felt a sensation of being pulled quickly through a vortex that she described as being like a tunnel, but it wasn't a tunnel. At some point, very early in the tunnel vortex, I became aware of my grandmother calling me, but I didn't hear her call me with my ears. It was a clearer hearing than with my ears. I trust the sense more than I trust my own ears. The feeling was that she wanted me to come to her, so I continued with no fear down the shaft. It's a dark shaft that I went through, and at the very end, there was this very little tiny pinpoint of light that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Pam describes how she entered the light and their sense presence that at first she could not see. Then she was able to discern different figures in the light, which slowly began to form shapes she could recognize. I could see that one of them was my grandmother. I don't know if it was reality or projection, but I would know my grandmother, the sound of her, anytime, anywhere. Everywhere I saw, looking back on it, fit perfectly into my understanding of what that person looked like at their best during their lives. And I recognized a lot of people. My Uncle Gene was there. So was my great-great-aunt Maggie, who was really a cousin. On Papa's side of the family, my grandfather was there. They would permit me to go no further. It was communicated to me that if I went all the way into that light, something would happen to me physically. They'd be unable to put me back into the body me. I'd gone too far, and they couldn't reconnect, so they wouldn't let me go anywhere or do anything. We're out of time. We'll come back next week and see what happens to Pam. And we'll see if what she saw actually happened. This is the Reverend John St. Germain, and next week, come back. We'll see what happens. You know I love you guys. Let's come back and see what happens. See you next week. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.